Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, James. Welcome back to another episode of Psych Essentials. I am so excited. What are we going to talk about next? Well, we're in our therapy series, and we're back for episode two of three. Now, in the last episode, we introduced the main types of psychotherapy. Right. So we briefly covered psychoanalysis, psychodynamic therapy, supportive CBT, but kind of from a, a bird's eye perspective. We talked about the history of the the origins of therapy and sort of where that left us today. We also talked a little bit about how people get therapy. And today we're going to dig into two specific types of therapy a little bit more and hopefully give you some tools that you can use on your rotation and, and practice in medicine in general. We are glad to be back in studio with Dr. Alyssa. Hello. We're so excited to have her. <laughs> Welcome back. Thank you. Now, Alyssa is going to observe a a conversation. This is a mock conversation, but we're going to reflect on it later in the episode. Lindsay, kick us off. Hey, James. Hey. I really don't feel like being at lectures today. Oh, no. What's going on? I had a really, really bad day at work. Oh, that's frustrating. Do you want to talk about what happened? Yeah, you know, I I had a really tough interview with one of my patients, and then afterwards, my attending was giving me feedback, and she was being really harsh about it. Uh, So you kind of felt, like, criticized and and maybe, like, not really in a constructive way? Yeah, I mean, I I already felt badly about how the interview had gone. I, I know it didn't go well. And then the feedback just made things worse. And then I actually ended up yelling at my attending. Oh, wow. It sounds like things got pretty heated. Yeah, I mean, of, of course they did. My attending was really being an egomaniac, thinking that she knows exactly how to do things. I'd had it. Ooh, well, I mean, it makes sense that you're kind of feeling down now. I mean, I don't know. I'm wondering how it can be helpful for you. Do you want to, like, talk about how you're going to approach the situation with your attending tomorrow? Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about it. I mean, I, I know I need to apologize. It, it wasn't professional. Yeah, you, your anger is kind of, like, cooled off now. Yeah, I, I've I've calmed down. I've had some time to think about it. I need to keep a closer eye on my emotions and really do better self-care after um, I interact with difficult patients. I probably should have asked for a break to reflect on my own before getting feedback from my attending. Mm, yeah, taking a little break. That, mean, that sounds like a good strategy. Yeah, thanks. I, I really appreciate that you took the time to listen. No problem. Well, thanks for that little vignette, guys. You might remember last time that we talked about psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapy that grew out of the work of Sigmund Freud. Those therapies are often referred to as expressive or uncovering therapies. We'll get into that more later. And many people think of those as occurring on a continuum with more supportive therapies, which we didn't talk about in the previous episode, but we'll go into it more here. Supportive therapies largely grew out of the work of someone named Carl Rogers, starting off in or work he was doing in the 1950s. The original Mr. Rogers. The original. <laughs> and unlike Freud and many of the other earlier psychotherapists who were really trying to be a, quote, blank slate for their patients, which meant that they were staying pretty quiet during therapy, the original Mr. Rogers was warm 
and responsive and did a lot of what we call reflecting. I guess that's Dr. Rogers. <laughs> that would be correct. Not the original. <laughs> it's the original Dr. Rogers. Okay, so Freud was like cold. You just go and you would just kind of talk and he would just be stone-faced. But Carl Rogers, it's cool to kind of see some videos of him, but he's warm and friendly and just like a nice person. He was doing some of these things like reflecting and validating. You may have heard of some of that before. But why why is that helpful? Like how why is that even pertinent anymore? If you think of your average patient on inpatient psychiatry who comes in with suicidal ideation, why are they getting better in the hospital? Probably not because of meds, just given how brief patients are with us in the inpatient hospital. Mm -hmm. And since it takes antidepressants like several weeks to even start working. Yeah, so not really meds, sometimes ECT if they're getting ECT. But generally we think of it as this kind of conglomeration of alleviation from their life stressors and then really the supportive environment of the hospital. So that includes the therapy groups that they're going to, other patients who are going through similar things to them, nurses who check in with patients in really supportive ways, and you. So I think as a general principle in psychiatry and medicine, the better your rapport and the more therapeutic you can be with your patients in the moment, the better they're going to do, whether that's improving from their depression or following your recommendations on taking medications or exercising or quitting smoking. When you say rapport, you mean the interaction that you can have, the spawn that you have mm -hmm. with people. Mm -hmm. and, and that doesn't mean being chummy necessarily, right? Is that different? Yeah, it, there's a big difference. And, and we'll get into in a little bit kind of how being overly friendly with people might actually lead to some problems or isn't recommended. The guiding principle that I use when I think about how to have good rapport with my patients is active listening. So Alyssa, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what active listening means. It's a big concept and it means a lot of different things, but fundamentally I would say it's listening with the intention to understand. You might have heard of the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. He has this famous quote where he says, listen with the intent to understand, not the intent to reply. So it's almost like hearkening back to the idea of empathy that we talked about in our last episode. Yeah, your goal is to understand what the patient is going through rather than having it be this back and forth, listen, reply conversation that is really dominates most of human interactions if we think of how most people are talking to each other. You're not comparing it to your own experience and you're not judging or evaluating what you're being told or, and what you think about it. This sounds helpful in medicine in general, but I guess in psychiatry, like this is really your job. Like this is like your job is is to be an active listener and to really try to understand what somebody is saying. Mm -hmm. In that opening bit, was that happening at all? Yeah, you guys were doing a great job. So the general theme was that James is asking these gentle questions to try to understand Lindsay's experience. Lindsay talks about having gotten this difficult feedback from her attending, and James doesn't say, I once got really awful feedback from that attending, too. He tries to understand more about what was that like for her. It's not about comparing it to his own experience. Uh, so even if something was true for you or you relate to something, that you're saying that's not even really the point. The point is just to understand where somebody else is at. Mm -hmm. Occasionally your own relationship to it can be helpful, but I think you should be really thoughtful before bringing your own experience into the into the conversation. And that's kind of like a different way of speaking in general than how we speak with our friends or family, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes people think that Saying something about yourself makes you more relatable. That can be true, but 
you risk developing this assumption that you know that your experiences is like your someone else's. So like if I said, oh yeah, I had a bad experience with an attending once too, Lindsay, you might have thought that I was saying, well, mine was exactly like yours. And it, it might have been like, well, no, mine was different. Like you don't know what I went through. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would say both in psychiatry and in life in general, trying to be aware of am I thinking about themselves? Am I thinking about myself to understand them, or just to kind of say my piece too? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, what else did you notice, Alyssa? What I saw mostly was you were trying to understand, and you did that by asking a couple of questions. And I think importantly at the beginning, you asked, "Do you want to talk about this?" Right? Like we're not forcing people into these therapeutic interactions. So a couple of questions, but mostly you you used reflections. Reflections are reflecting back or saying back to someone some aspect of their experience. It's often their words. Like Lindsay said, the attending's feedback felt harsh. And James said, you felt criticized. He's kind of reflecting back the content of her speech or some aspect of her, how she felt in her experience reflections really just help you to understand the patient better because you can reflect something back and the patient might say no and that's totally okay because then they'll correct you and you'll still get a better understanding of what the patient is experiencing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You want to say these are statements, but you want to say them in this kind of open and exploratory way. So like when James made a statement about Lindsay's anger having cooled off, she said, yeah, I've calmed down. But she could have said, well, actually, I'm still pretty angry, but I just know it wasn't professional, so I have to apologize anyway. Like Those are two different outcomes that could have come from that, but he said it in such a way that if if she hadn't felt calmer now, she could have said something different. And either way, I would have known more about her. So either I would have known that she is calmer now or she's actually more angry now. And both of those would have been helpful for me to better understand. Mm-hmm. The reason that we push reflections over questions is that If you get it right, like when you make a reflection that is actually on point, it is so much more powerful than saying to someone, has your anger calmed down now? In a questioning way, because it it just gets closer to actually understanding their experience. Another type of reflection is, or or I should say a particular type, is a validation. And that's pointing out how things make sense. Sometimes it's only one aspect of a person's experience because things don't entirely make sense. Like when Lindsay made the comment about her attending being an egomaniac, James didn't say, you're right, she totally is, because that's not really valid, or or maybe it is. So he said, it makes sense that you're feeling down now, because after the day that she had, even if it was partially her fault, it did make sense that she was feeling this way. Mm-hmm. You're affirming that somebody else is feeling the way that they're feeling. You're validating, you're offering acknowledgement of where they're at validations can enhance the bond or the rapport between the patient and the therapist. Mm -hmm. Again, more of people feeling understood and like their experience makes sense. The words that you use can be pretty important here. Mm -hmm. Really think carefully about the word but. Consider, you know, banishing it from your vocabulary. But Alyssa, what's wrong with the word but? (laughs) But has its uses. But it can. (laughs) And it also can have the effect of invalidating whatever you said that came before it. And so often we're in this situation of saying to patients, you're really struggling right now, but you stop taking your medications, right? In our mind, those two things don't make sense. And probably what the patient hears from that is my struggle before that was not valid. And in some way, like my having stopped taking my medications has eclipsed that. Versus if we said, you're really struggling right now, 
and you stop taking your medications. That's more of like a both of those parts had a had a role to play and both of them are still important. Sometimes this can feel not the most natural way to talk, but I will say that it becomes a lot more natural and a lot easier with practice. When you're practicing interviews in front of a resident or an attending, I would encourage you to try to use as many reflections as you possibly can. Limit the questions and and see if the interview feels different for you, how the patient responds to it. Oftentimes it goes remarkably well. There are some types of therapy where they recommend that you make your ratio of one question to three reflections, which is so different than the way most physicians talk. Yeah, so maybe when you're going into an interview, just let somebody on your team know, like, hey, I'm going to try practicing reflections today and see if I can make four reflections and ask them if they'll help you keep tally. Sometimes it's a little hard to think about what you're thinking as you're talking. So getting some buy-in from your team can be a helpful way to do that. We've talked a lot about reflections. Another hallmark of supportive psychotherapy and a way that it's different from the expressive or uncovering interventions that we'll talk about in a little bit is that we are reinforcing adaptive coping and supporting people as they are. So in the conversation, Lindsay talks about yelling at the attending and how she's an egomaniac. James kind of turns the conversation into how do we cope with this? How do you how do you do better, more adaptive behavior? Right. He doesn't go into depth about, well, why did you feel this way? What do you think was going on there? He kind of accepts where I am in my emotional state and then is helping me to move forward in a healthy way. And that is often the approach that you're going to want to take with your patients on inpatient psychiatry. People are in crisis and at really difficult points in their lives. It's not usually a great time to be digging into their defenses and motivations. And so we keep it in the how do we do better with this range. Okay. In the first half so far, we've talked about supportive psychotherapy. And we've said that that involves active listening. So listening with the intent to understand We talked about reflecting back the words and emotions that people have told you, validating where you empathize that things make sense or understanding, and then supporting somebody in coping with stressful situations. This seems like a turning point where we're going to start talking about more analytic or sometimes people say dynamic types of therapy. With this whole next section, this is not generally things that you're going to be talking about explicitly with your patients outside of a psychotherapy context, but it definitely informs how you think about them. So defense mechanisms are classic step one and shelf questions. Generally, I would think of them as things that people do to not feel the less conscious or painful aspects of their experiences. People will say that they are defending against something. Last time you said that Freud had this idea of unconscious conflict, so something that was not even in your awareness that bubble up and made you feel bad. And here what you're saying is in order to not feel bad, people will do things to to not feel bad. Mm -hmm. So in that example, Lindsay says, my attending was just being such an egomaniac. I mean, it is possible that she really thinks the attending was being excessively egocentric. Or it's possible that she feels ashamed and embarrassed about how she behaved and that she kind of acted out in response to these strong emotions. So she's projecting this sense of inappropriateness onto her attending because she feels inappropriate, but she doesn't want to feel that way. So it's now the attending was inappropriate. So the defense mechanism is called projection there. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's how Lindsay dealt with that uncomfortable feeling, the conflict of feeling embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
another explanation we could say, like if she felt inadequate about her skills as an interviewer, she might deny this by saying the problem is the attending being overly confident. The problem is not me and my interviewing skills. So there, the defense mechanism would be denial. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, again, the example at the beginning is supportive psychotherapy. James does not go into what might be the unconscious drivers of this statement, but is just shifting it to how do you cope more adaptively with this? Mm. So even if I had theories in my own mind of what might be going on, it wasn't really the time or place to lay them out on Lindsay, but rather help her deal with a stressful situation. Exactly. Yeah. One important thing to recognize is that we all have defense mechanisms, no matter kind of how mature or immature we might be in general. And we often need these defense mechanisms to kind of get through life. Yeah. I mean, if we all felt the most painful aspects of our experience all the time. It would be rough. Yeah. People talk about the range of adaptiveness of defense mechanisms. Humor is kind of a classic higher functioning defense mechanism where people will laugh about things that are in fact quite painful for them or difficult. And it's just a way to not feel that emotion so intensely. There are like other ones that are less adaptive, right? Right. Splitting is a good example of seeing people in this very black and white way and they're one way and then another. That gets people into a lot of trouble and relationships don't work well. And so that's the the goal in therapy is more awareness of your defense mechanisms and using more adaptive defense mechanisms. One thing I think of psychodynamic therapy and I think a lot about the past, like what's happened in the past for somebody. Could you just talk about how that relates to therapy? One of the core concepts of psychodynamic therapy is this idea that past is prologue. This thought that people have common ways of being in the world, many of which have origins in early childhood, and that these tend to get repeated over and over in people's lives. So in the example at the beginning, you could imagine that Lindsay had maybe had some childhood experiences in which key caregivers didn't help her understand and modulate her emotions, and then she would kind of act out in response to that, and and we're seeing this pattern again now, again purely fictional purely fictional (laughs) thanks mom um so i know this probably feels like a lot of discussion i bet it feels like we're really over reading into one situation we're just trying to draw examples from this one conversation as to how you could think about dynamic therapy rather than trying to beat home this and it can feel like a lie it can feel like an overextension or like people are reading into things or exaggerating or making things up but there are theories behind these are like theories of how our minds work and why we're doing some of the things we're doing i think they're interesting to think about just this mindset of being curious about the different things that might be motivating people and you have a lot of different hypotheses and many of them are probably wrong but if you never have the hypothesis to begin with you'll never get to the higher level of insight totally The last concept in psychodynamic therapy is transference and countertransference. These have a variety of definitions depending on whether you're in a formal therapy frame or your work on the inpatient psychiatry ward. So Alyssa, what is transference? How do you summarize it? Transference is how our patients feel about us. Well, that's pretty simple. Then what's countertransference? How we feel about our patients. And is this normal? Mm -hmm. Back in the early days of psychoanalysis, people tried to reduce this, but now we think of this as normal, common, happens all the time. At a very basic level, people can have positive or negative countertransference. You know, does this patient like you as their physician or not? They can include things like frustration, anger, and, you know, you're not going to be telling your patients, like, I feel angry towards you usually, but it's important to be aware of them, notice them, discuss them with your colleagues so that you don't act on them inappropriately. 
Like you could imagine if there's a patient who you feel frustrated about, you might theoretically discharge them sooner than is appropriate because it's so hard to deal with them and you feel like you're not helping them. And so it's kind of in your unconscious just to have them off of your team. By discussing that feeling of frustration and helplessness with your team, you might be able to guard against that acting it out inappropriately. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean like the situation is going to be different or situation is going to change. It might not be easier to have this difficult person on your team, but at least then you can sort of acknowledge it and feel less alone or less sort of frustrated at the situation. And take better care of them. Absolutely. This is a really common phenomenon. I mean, I think of the times that I've gone to see a doctor and I have lots of feelings about them and what it was like and and they probably had feelings about me. And I think that's just normal part of like having an interaction with another person. Mm-hmm. One important thing with countertransference is, and I think we've kind of emphasized this, is that it's okay to have these maybe anger, frustration, like some of these negative feelings, as long as you're able to talk about it and process it and make sure that it's not interfering with your ability to care for the patient. Or really positive feelings. Like, I really like this person. They make me really happy. It's okay to have strong feelings, positively or negatively. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can help us review the core concepts of the second half, psychodynamic or more analytic therapy. So we've talked about defense mechanisms, which are ways that people try to not feel painful aspects of the unconscious or their experience. Talked about past is prologue, people having familiar patterns that repeat throughout their lives, and then transference and countertransference. These are common, normal. We just want to be aware of them if we can so we don't act on them inappropriately. All right, and that concludes our brief tour of supportive and psychodynamic therapies. And on our next episode, we'll be discussing CBT. Cognitive behavioral therapy. We're jetpacking to the 1960s. (laughs) Let's take it modern. Thank you again to Alyssa for joining us these episodes. You are welcome. Please check out our website. Leave us a review. Let us know what you'd like to hear more about in the future. Our website is www.psychessentials.org. You can follow us. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Psych Essentials. You can also check us out on iTunes where you can rate, comment, and share. Our music is by Javier Suarez off his album Tumbling Dishes. There's a link on our website. As always, our conversations are fictional. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Till next time. Bye.